again to the book of Numbers. Today, Numbers chapter 35. For the past five months or so, we have been walking chapter by chapter, passage by passage, uh, through this Old Testament book, and we are almost at the end. We're so close to the end that as you turn the page, the second half of our chapter, you can see it. Uh, just a reminder uh, that after we are done with Numbers, Lord willing, we will be turning to the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. So if you're anxious for what comes next, uh, you can begin uh, ruminating on that. Uh, you can begin reading it and, and studying God's word in preparation for what will be a much different pace. Uh, numbers, we have, we've moved along in a pretty fast clip. Hebrews is not going to be that way. We're going to settle in together for a little bit uh, in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, and uh, we'll pray together that the Lord will bless our time. But today, Numbers chapter 35, as the people are themselves almost at the end of their journey, just about to cross over into the land of Canaan, the Lord gives a very important set of regulations today uh, concerning the cities that are to be given to the Levites. And among those cities, six of them, which are to be a refuge for the people. Uh, we'll find uh, that today in Numbers chapter 35, and pray that the Lord will give us grace to see uh, his news and word for his church through it. Uh, let's go to this uh, together, and before we do, let us pray that the Lord will bless our study. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. As we come to it, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to believe the good news that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, just as those in days of old, would flee for refuge to these cities. Help us to flee to Christ as a refuge for sinners. Be, O oh Lord, a fortress for your people. Help us to trust in him. And help us to walk in wisdom as you call us to live as your people in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We well, hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 35. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. You shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for all their livestock and for all their beasts." The pasture lands of the cities, which you shall give to the Levites, shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. You shall measure outside the city, on the east side, two thousand cubits, and on the south side, two thousand cubits, and on the west side, two thousand cubits, and on the north side, two thousand cubits, the city being in the middle. This shall belong to them as pasture land for their cities. The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, where you shall permit the manslayer to flee. In addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. And as for the cities that you shall give for the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes you shall take the many, and from the smaller tribes you shall take few. Each, in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits, shall give of its cities to the Levites. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. 
And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for all the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him, dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy, did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with all these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, for the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he has fled, and he shall live in it until the day of the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the man shall, manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And all these things shall be for a statute and a rule for you, throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. No person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest." You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land that the blood is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who has shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, you folks are all aware that according to the proverbial wisdom of our day, uh, so the saying goes, if you love something, you should let it go. If you love something, you should let it go. I've always thought that was pretty stupid advice. Uh, actually, why would you get rid of the things that you care most about? Instead, really, we mostly live by the wisdom of if you love something, you should do everything you can to protect it. And we do. We protect our stuff with chain link fences and insurance policies. We protect our democracy with checks and balances. 
We protect our children with discipline. We protect our churches with creeds. We protect our friendships or our marriages with long, late-night conversations about the things that are most important to us. And if you love something, you should protect it. You should guard and preserve those things that are worth keeping. Now, Numbers chapter 35 is one of these passages where it's not until we get to the very end that we learn the spiritual principle that has been driving the entire passage. Look again at verse 34 for that principle. Verse 34 says, You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I the Lord dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. You see, there is something that the Lord cares about. There's something that he loves. The Lord loves the people of Israel. He cares about the land that he's giving them. Most of all, he cares about the fellowship that they will have together in the land where he will dwell in their midst. And what we find as we work this principle backwards is that the Lord was giving these commandments to his people to be a protection for them. He is protecting them from the tendency to think less of sin and its defiling ability. He is protecting them from breaking fellowship with the Lord who is in their midst. The Lord loves his people, and so he gives them protections. And uh, through the way that we see the Lord protecting his people, it's true, we, we don't have cities of refuge like this anymore, but it shows us a window into the heart of God. It shows us through the way that he protects his people just how he loves them. And so there are a few protections that we see in this passage. There are four to be exact, lest you think that your preacher preacher only knows how to preach three-point sermons. Uh, Four specific protections the Lord gives to his people in this passage. The first is the protection of scattered servants. The Lord gives the protection of scattered servants. And the passage begins with the legislation concerning these 48 cities that are to be given to the Levitical tribes. Now, the earlier chapters in Numbers uh, have prepared us for this. We've been told all throughout that the plan is going to be the same. Whenever they get to the land of Canaan, all of the tribes will each receive their own inheritance, their own perpetual possession in the land. All of the tribes except the Levites. Of the Levites, the Lord said in Numbers chapter 18, he said, I myself will be their inheritance. He called them out of a people who was his own possession. He called this tribe to be his special possession. They would receive him as an inheritance rather than the land, and so they received from the Lord and from the people no abiding city. Rather than fields where they could plant their crops and and grow their vineyards, they They got standalone cities scattered throughout the land of Israel where they could be a blessing to the people. You know, all throughout the the wilderness days, the Levites were those who served the people. They served through, uh, through service and protection. They made sure that there were animals available for the regular sacrifices. They set up the tabernacle when the people moved from place to place. They also served as a sort of uh, human buffer zone of purity between the holiness of God and the tabernacle at the center of the camp, and the rest of the tribes camped around on the outside. But when they got into the land, things would be different. All the tribes would, would no longer be gathered right around where God was in the center. They themselves would be dispersed. 
the tabernacle itself would settle down in one place. It wouldn't need to be moved. Eventually, a, a temple would be built. And the question when they come into the land of Canaan is, what is to become of the Levites? I mean, they have to live somewhere. They have to do something, even if the tent of God isn't moving around anymore. And so the Lord's solution is to scatter them, to send them throughout the land for the good of the people. So verse 8 says that every tribe was to contribute something to the Levites. If you had a, a larger inheritance for a larger tribe, you were to give more cities. If you had a smaller inheritance for a smaller tribe, you were to give smaller cities, but everyone was supposed to contribute, and they were to be spread, spread throughout all the tribes to become a blessing for all God's people. What this meant was that if you were a part of the tribe of the Asherites, perhaps, and, and you lived where they settled along the Mediterranean coast way up north, you and your family might be a several days' journey from the experience of regular worship in the temple. Worship was happening, but, but you couldn't get there, and certainly not most of the year. Even if you were faithful to attend all of the regular uh, festivals and all the annual sacrifices, that still left a very large portion of your life where you were disconnected from the rest of God's people. Oh, but if the Levites were there, they were scattered among the tribes, there was always a reminder. So whoever you happened to be among, whatever tribe you were in, there was always a city somewhere close by, always some little village with flocks and herds grazing outside. And when you passed by that village, you could remember those are the animals that are being kept for those annual sacrifices. Those are the servants who will go up and help to prepare those things. Here is a reminder that God is in our midst, even if I can't see it from where I live in my daily routine. And then in time, when you had disputes with your neighbor, as you undoubtedly would, about matters of the law, about boundary markers and things like that, or, or as your children grew up and they began to have deep and, and abiding questions about the covenant promises of God, well, the Levites became a resource for you. They became your teachers, they became your counselors, they became, before the time of rabbis, something like rabbis and scribes and those who knew the law of God, those who could come alongside the people and help them. Here's how Matthew Henry says it. He says, while the service of the temple was only in one place, the preaching of the word of God and prayer and praise were not so confined. It wasn't confined. Instead, it was spread throughout all of the tribes, the Lord had scattered his servants. He made them a blessing to his people. He made them uh, to be there to call other people back to the realities and the truths that were hard to see from where they lived their lives. Now, as we trace this through into the New Testament, we see the same protection given through Jesus Christ. Ephesians tells us uh, that when our Lord ascended, he gave gifts to all men. That sounds good. Everybody likes to receive gifts. What kind of gifts has he given? Well, specifically, it says that he's given apostles, he's given prophets, he's given evangelists, he's given teachers and pastors. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up together. The same thing shows up in the beginning of Titus. Paul says, you know, Titus, I left you back in Crete when I left there because there were a few things yet that had to be put in order. What had to be put in order? Well, they needed elders in every town. They needed shepherds and servants scattered among wherever God's people were gathered. Now, you know how this works by now, I hope. You know that your elders and your pastor are not perfect men by any stretch of the imagination. Neither were the Levites who lived among the people. They had their own hang-ups, right? 
And you know that your elders and your pastor cannot in the smallest way add to or replace the only sacrifice that can purify your sins, that of Jesus Christ. That, that's not what we're here for. Nevertheless, God has given servants to his church. He has given men called to ministry to be a blessing to you, to teach you the word of God, to help you believe in the promises that are hard to see from where you live your daily lives. By the grace of God, he's done it for the church down the road, too. And he's done it for the church in the next town. And wherever God sends his people all over the face of the earth, he's always raising up leaders. He's giving shepherds and he's giving servants to his people, not so that they can be the center of attention in every church. right? Not so that they can be the big egos or the important people, so that they can be servants. He's given them as a protection because the Lord loves his church. He has scattered his servants among her. Now, secondly, in this passage, the Lord gives the protection of accessible safety. Accessible safety. I promise they will not all be S words. Three out of the four, I couldn't, couldn't get there. Uh, but he gives them accessible safety. Now, we come to the crux of this chapter in verse 11. The Lord says, when you cross into Canaan, verse 11, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. Now, here's another, uh, another provision that earlier laws in the law of God have prepared us for. In fact, you can go all the way back to the book of Exodus, chapter 21, immediately after the people have come out of Egypt, when they gathered at the base of Sinai and received the law of God, then they received some other very important laws about justice in the land. And in chapter 21, the Lord told them the distinction between what today we call murder versus manslaughter. In a sense, intentional killing versus unintentional killing. In Exodus 21, the distinction seems to be, did you lie in wait for the person? Did you kill through cunning? Or did they simply fall into your hands? What we might call something like a crime of passion. You didn't intend, there was no premeditation, but it, but it happened. And there in Exodus chapter 21, the Lord says that when the people come into the land, he's going to give them places of refuge. The unintentional killer can flee to these places of refuge. And now they're on the borders of Canaan, and the Lord is giving further instructions. He tells them to select six cities, just one shy of the perfect seven, because the temple itself, or the tabernacle, the altar of God, was the perfect seventh, the sanctuary where you could flee. He says select six cities, three on the east side of the Jordan, three on the west side in Canaan, uh, and in Joshua, when you read the account, you find that they were chosen to be roughly equidistant from one another. On either side of the river, two in the north, two in the south, and two round about the middle. That way, one commentator says that wherever you lived in Israel, you were within a single day's journey of these sanctuary cities. That was important. It meant that you could get there quickly if you needed to. No need to, to pack an extra bag, no need to have a multi-day uh, trek where you may be hunted down on the way, but you could get there quickly. Now that sounds strange to us, uh, because we're used to hearing uh, cases of, of murders and manslaughter getting caught up for months or, or dragging out in years in, in overloaded court systems, but that's not the way it happened in these days. Very often at this time, the matter of justice over a killing was decided almost immediately. Take a look at verse 12. It gives us an idea of what's going on here. 
verse 12 says, these cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. Now that word translated avenger in the Hebrew is a word that you already know. It is goel. In other words, you probably know it in its other translation, the redeemer or the kinsman redeemer. In the story of Ruth, Boaz is the goel. He is the closest relative who has a responsibility to recover what the family has lost. And in various contexts, that recovery might take on different responsibilities in Israel. And so it was the, the role of the goel, the kinsman redeemer. If you had a relative who had fallen into poverty and sold themselves into slavery, it was your job as the redeemer to go and buy them back. If they had to sell their land for the same reason, it was your job as a redeemer to go and buy back, to restore what the family had lost. And in the case of a killing, whether intentional or unintentional, it was also the role of the redeemer to seek out and see that justice was done. Now, actually, I think this is where this begins to sound much more familiar to us. You are aware, of course, that it wasn't too long ago at all even in our country, and not only in the South, where things like this would happen. Where, say, for example, a black man would be even accused of, of harming a white man or a white woman, and there would be no fair trial, there would be no slow move of justice, instead there would be a lynching. There would be mob violence, and there would be rage and revenge, and it would never get as far as the courts of the law. And that's the sort of thing that has happened here in our own time, probably within the lifetime of people sitting in this room. And if that has happened here, you can maybe begin to imagine how countercultural it is when the Lord says to them, verse 15, these six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner, he says, among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. You're supposed to have safety. You're supposed to have a society where all people have equal access, the Lord is saying, and not just for the people who look like you. This is a radical idea right down to our own age, but it's showing up here. This refreshingly contemporary idea in the pages of the Old Testament. You see what the Lord is saying? He's saying that where he rules his people, there should be safety for everyone. There can be no double standard. There's no opportunity to say, if you don't look like us, your life is not important. Actually, all of that is where we tie this back to the fact that these cities were given to the Levites, specifically. You know, there's an irony in that. Another picture into the mercy of God, I think. Because it was the Lord who said that the Levites were going to be scattered in Israel as, as servants as a blessing for the people. But before the Lord said that here in Numbers, their forefather Jacob said that they should be scattered for a much different reason. Genesis chapter 49, it was during his dying address to his 12 sons, the father of Israel said this about Levi and Simeon. Genesis 49, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You remember the story, right? Simeon and Levi's sister Dinah had been violated. She was raped by a foreigner, a non-Israelite Gentile by the name of Shechem. 
And rather than seeking justice against the man who had perpetrated the crime, Simeon and Levi took the nuclear option. They imagined that they were acting as kinsman redeemer, and instead of seeking justice, they went beyond the bounds of justice and into blind rage and revenge. They killed an entire city full of men for the crime of one man. They took one crime and they turned it into many more, and actually that's the way these things work. One violation turns into an act of vengeance, and one act of vengeance is act answered by another, and soon it becomes a blood feud between people, constantly trying to settle one score against the other. That is what the Lord is trying to keep his people from devolving into. That's why he's saying, hold on a minute. Slow down. This is not the way we are to do things in the land where I'm sending you. We're not going to be shedding blood left and right. We're not going to be polluting the land with vengeance and revenge. But because of that lust for vengeance, Jacob pronounced this curse on his sons, Levi and Simeon. Well, the Lord is the one who's able to turn a curse into a blessing. And so he does what Jacob predicted. He scatters these two tribes. You can trace the history. Simeon actually receives his inheritance within the land of Judah. Eventually, the Simeonites are, are all but absorbed, and, and eventually they disappear from the history of Israel. The Levites, on the other hand, by God's grace, by his sovereign choice, the Levites are scattered from one end of Israel to the other. And the Lord took these Levites whose forefather had tasted the rage of violence, and he says, it's to the Levites that you are to go when you find yourself in trouble. It's to them that you can go and find a refuge from the sin that comes from your own hands. They are the ones who are to welcome in the Israelite and the stranger and the sojourner. They are the ones who will have to give safety to all because though they didn't deserve it, they found safety in the Lord. There's an irony here. He takes those who were themselves redeemed sinners and says, you be a blessing to the people who will come to you. And when you think about it, this is the ministry that all God's people have to one another, isn't it? What a shame it is whenever Christians get a reputation as people who are simply holier than thou. When your friend who knows you're a Christian but, but might get the sensation that if they come to you and they tell you what's really going on in your life, you'll probably look down at them. You'll think, I'm glad that I'm not like that. They might, they might be hesitant to come and share what's going on in their lives because, you know, those Christians, they can't be trusted. They're up here in the clouds and everybody else is down there and they're just looking down their long pharisaical noses at everybody else. Well, Galatians chapter 6 gives us a different story. Galatians tells us, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you should restore them in a spirit of gentleness, and keep watch on yourself, lest you too should be tempted. In other words, those that are professing Christians should be the very first ones who extend mercy to the sinners we encounter in life. When someone you know is caught in a mess that they themselves have made, God's word says we are the ones who ought to be gentle toward them. We need to seek their restoration. But we can only do that if we recognize that we ourselves need restoration with God first. If we realize that we need to receive his mercy in order to extend mercy and forgiveness to others. You see, Levi was the perfect tribe 
to shepherd these cities of refuge because they had received safety in the Lord and now they could share it with those who came to them. And brothers and sisters, if you're a professing believer, you ought to be doing the same. The Lord gives you to be a safety for those who come and they wonder, can God be trusted with my sin? Does he really care about the things that are going on in my life? Does he really have anything to do with me? Does he want to draw me near, or does he just want to push me away? And they may not know the God that you believe in yet, but they know you. And when they come, you ought to be the one who says, let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. So the Lord loves his people. He gives them scattered servants, and he gives them accessible safety. He also gives them measured Justice. Measured justice. Now here's where we have to get down to difficult application. You know, of course we can stand here and we can talk about mercy and forgiveness and a refuge for sinners. And of course the scriptures tell us that all manner of sin will be forgiven. Praise the Lord for that. Right? Even killers can find forgiveness in the Lord and even murderers may receive the gift of eternal life. The promise of 1 Corinthians is true for all kinds of sinners. It says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We ought to say yea and amen. And I have no doubt that when you believers go and die and go before the Lord in heaven, you will stand before his presence alongside other people who have willfully taken human life. And yet their sin has been covered and cleansed just the same as yours has. So it's true. There is mercy in the Lord for all sorts of sin. But we also need to know that our sins have consequences. Especially as we live in society with one another, especially as we live in community and order and justice need to be established where we live. Our sins have consequences. And when it comes to maintaining just society in the land the Lord was giving his people, the consequence for murder was the sentence of death. You hear it there repeated several times. Verses 16 to 21, over and over again, it tells us, there is a refuge for those who kill without meaning it, but if the killing was with an iron object, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Well, what if it was with a stone tool? What if it was with a, a wooden implement? What if he pushed him? What, what if he, he, he sought his harm out of enmity or hatred? Well, then he is a murderer, it tells us. Over and over again, the murderer shall be put to death. And it's in that situation, verse 19, that the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, receives a new name. Here, and to the rest of the passage, he is called the Goel Hadam. Not just the redeemer, but the avenger of blood. And the Lord says that in that case, the avenger has a new responsibility, a legal requirement He shall put the murderer to death, it says. If you're wondering if there is an escape clause, there is not. Verse 31 says, you shall not receive a ransom for the life of a murderer. You shall not give the rich and the powerful an option just to buy their way out of justice. You shall not not lower the standard from the death of the killer uh, to recompensation for the family. There is no opportunity for a lesser sentence. The only answer for intentionally taking another human life, the Lord says, is the death of the killer. It's straightforward, but it also traces out a principle that is much older than the book of Numbers. 
It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. You remember the moment that Noah comes out of the ark where he's been with his family through the cataclysm and the flood, and he steps out and he offers sacrifices to God for his mercy and protection. And there the Lord blesses Noah and his sons. He recommissions them to repopulate the earth. And then in Genesis 9, verse 6, he lays down a statute, a new creation statute, not just for Israel, but for humanity. And this is what he says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Notice how wonderfully unnuanced this is. This is not a political argument. This is not a discussion about whether lethal injections will cost more taxpayer dollars than life sentences. Right? This is not a question of whether it's progressive or archaic or whether some politician is just trying to prove that they're tough on crime. It's not a question of the possibility of rehabilitation and the value of things like that. It is simply a question of the value of human life. God made man in his own image, he says. Therefore, the death penalty is necessary. Those who kill as an act of murder attempt to undo what the Lord has done. They attempt by their sin to smother the evidence that there is a God in the universe who is not them, who has revealed himself through the people, through the creatures that he's made, to show forth his glory in the world. Ian Duguid put it this way. He said, if we want to be consistently pro-life, it means we need to recognize the supreme value of every person made in the image of God, and it means we must demand a reckoning for the shedding of innocent blood. And the scripture tells us that the only punishment, the only reckoning that takes the value of life seriously is the punishment of death. What it means, to put a fine point on it, is that the Bible does not merely support the use of capital punishment. It requires it. And the New Testament confirms this. Right? Paul says in, first, in, in Romans chapter 13, excuse me, Paul says that to the civil authorities God has entrusted, he says, the power of the sword. Well, why? To what end? Just to take it out and wave it around and hope that people will be more agreeable in the long run. No, the power of the sword is the power of life and death. It's capital punishment. And so in the New Testament and in the Old, the argument is the same. The murderer shall be put to death. And somebody says, hold on there. Not everything is that clear. Not everything is recorded on surveillance cameras. Not everything can be known completely. What about cases in which it's not so obvious? What if it was wrong place, wrong time sort of stuff? What about if we can't be absolutely clear that the death was a murder and not a mistake? And that's what the rest of the passage deals with. So verses 16 to 21 lay a responsibility on the avenger, but verses 22 to 29 place a responsibility on the community. You notice that? Verse 24 says that the congregation, the congregation shall judge between the two parties, between the avenger and the manslayer. And they shall judge in accordance with these rules. And then verse 25, and the congregation has a responsibility, they shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger. It is a measured justice. It's not the sort of thing that we just turn over to a mob foaming in the mouth for easy revenge. It's the kind of thing that ought to be considered. It ought to be examined carefully. 
Here is this surprisingly contemporary thought for those who are somewhat skeptical of the Old Testament and how brutal it could have been. The thought is that everyone has the right to a fair trial. A trial, the text goes on, that is to be decided according to unchanging standards. A trial that must be decided, verse 30 says, by weighing the testimony of multiple witnesses. There's more legal stuff here. We, we could get into the weeds of the other requirements that the Lord gives his people, but the basic principle seems to be that the distinction here between murder and manslaughter comes to the level of premeditation. Did you set out waiting and intending to commit this crime? There are certain uh, weapons, we might say, lethal weapons that constitute a murder just by their very use. Apart from that, verse 22 says maybe he pushed him, maybe he threw something. Maybe he dropped a stone and didn't see him. We, you know, you're not sure how that happens, but it, but it happens, right? There's negligence involved sometimes in manslaughter. And the text seems to be saying that if those things happened without malice, without premeditation, then that today is what we call manslaughter. And the measure of justice comes in in this, that where there is no guilt, or maybe even where there is suspicion of guilt but insufficient evidence, it was the responsibility of the community not to treat the innocent as the guilty deserved. In a just society where the Lord is leading his people, there should be no room for lynch mobs. But neither is there room for legal wrangling and shenanigans. The court systems must not be hijacked for the sake of revenge. They may not be twisted to allow the guilty to go free. Isn't it interesting? I remember being, I don't know, maybe, maybe a fourth grader. At the time, I'm dating myself now, but I remember that the O.J. Simpson trial was going on, and it was playing on the TV screens in our public school because everybody was involved and interested. What's going to happen with this huge case? And so often we take matters of life and death and we turn them into a public spectacle. Well, what do you think? I don't know. I, I didn't see the evidence. I wasn't there, but I think he deserves it, right? And the Lord is saying, slow down. Don't be quick to judge. Don't go on the basis of your gut feeling, but weigh the evidence. This might be important if you get one of those letters from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that invites you to show up at your local courtroom sometime, maybe to sit on a jury. You know, it's not church work, it's not a Bible study, but you go into the world as a believer, don't you? In everything you do, you take the principle of God's word and truth and justice, and you take it with you. And so remember that. When that letter shows up, that little postcard, and you've got to send in your information, I'm going to go and I might hear something that I'm not prepared for, but I'm going to judge with right judgment. That's the principle all throughout Scripture. That we ought to have a measured justice. And in the land, the Lord gave his people standards of justice. Why? So that they would remember the value of human life. Not just the life of the person that had already been taken, but the life that hangs in the balance of their decision. So, so far, three protections for God's people. He gave them scattered servants. He gave them accessible safety. He gave them measured justice. But then there's one more, and it is the promise of an atoning substitute. An atoning substitute. Maybe you are perplexed, as I was perplexed, by the punishment that God inflicts on the person who has been found innocent of murder, yet guilty of manslaughter. It wasn't on purpose. There was no intent. There was no malice. There was no enmity. Yet verse 25 says that their place of refuge will become a place of confinement. Verse 25, the congregation shall rescue the manslayer 
from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge, to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the day of the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. Now, of course, in our own legal system, there are punishments for what we call involuntary manslaughter. And maybe that's the sort of thing that's in mind here. Maybe negligence, maybe recklessness that led to somebody else's death. In our commonwealth, it can carry a fine or a penalty of up to 20 years in a state prison. Maybe that's the sort of thing that's going on. And so we realize that that happens. And so it's not the fact that the manslayer is punished, I think, that is perplexing. Rather, what's perplexing is that the punishment is tied to the death of the high priest. I think it reveals a deeper principle going on here. I mean, if it was simply a matter of, uh, of, of leveling the score, if it was simply a matter of paying back what had been lost, why not impose a fine? If it was simply a matter of, uh, of giving an equal punishment for an equal crime, why not make the killer go into exile for the rest of their life? Why on earth take this crime that's been committed and tie it to the death of somebody who wasn't there and had nothing to do with it at all, the death of the high priest? Why is he involved? Well, he's involved because it was his job to represent the people before the Lord. That's why the text tells us that he is the one who was anointed with the holy oil. Of course the high priest is anointed with the holy oil. It's an unnecessary redundancy to make you remember he is consecrated to this. He's set apart to this. This is his ministry of representation. He stands before the Lord and he represents the people to to God. And when the high priest died, the Lord accepted his death as a substitute for the manslayer. Take a look at verses 31 to 33. Notice the logic as these verses unfold. Verses 31 and 32, the Lord warns his people, you shall not lower the standard of justice. If somebody needs to be put to death, you shall not take money instead. If somebody needs to be exiled until the death of the high priest, you shall not take money instead. You shall not lower the system of justice. And then verse 33 tells us why they can't lower that standard. Here's the principle. He says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. It's the same principle that we saw earlier. The inherent value of every human life. And that doesn't change based on how the murder was committed. Right? The, the, the life is not more valuable if it was manslaughter or less valuable if it was murder or vice versa. The human life is the human life. And the payment that the Lord demands is still the blood of the killer. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. We've seen that already. But here there's something new. And what is new is that for all those who kill without intent maybe through recklessness or negligence or whatever else, who all who kill without intent, the Lord is willing to accept a substitute. This is not some modern evangelical sleight of hand, by the way. In the 5th century, this is how the Jewish commentators spoke about this text. They said, but is it not the punishment of exile that atones for sin? No, it is not the exile that atones, but the death of the high priest atones for the sin of the manslayer. That's how the Jews looked at it. Yet again, it means that the Lord loves his people enough to protect them. 
He loves them enough not just to protect them from criminals lying in wait. He loves them enough to protect them from the guilt of sin that hides in their own hearts. And for all of God's people living in the land of Canaan, and now for all of God's people today, this is true for us in Jesus Christ. I'm sure that all of us sitting in here, you may not have done these things. You may have, I don't know. You may not have done these things, but you have committed those sins where you felt like it was just an accident. Something you didn't expect, something you didn't plan for. Suddenly it feels like you're being led into this and you don't know how it happened and you find yourself caught up in something that seems bigger than you. Incidents of iniquity that felt like they were out of your control. Then again, there are those sins that you have committed knowing full well exactly what you were doing. Right, that fit of rage. You just let boil and, and, and bubble under the surface because it feels good to seethe for a while at that person who's wronged you. And Jesus tells us that that is the sin of murder in the heart. And then there have been others. Moments that you follow your own understanding. Moments that you suppress the truth of God's righteousness. Moments that you blatantly ignore the inconvenient commandment that you know the Lord has given you because you don't want to follow it. What Isaiah said is true of us all. We all like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one of us to our own way. Well, what can be done? Well, the Lord can give us a substitute. He can give us a great high priest to represent us to the Lord, to bear our iniquity before him. And that's what he's done. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to our own way. And Isaiah says, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On whom? On his son. Our great high priest, Jesus. God the Father has made his son, Jesus, our refuge and our redeemer. Because he loves us enough to protect us. And so at the cross of Calvary, our great high priest became our substitute. He bore the sins of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. And if you have trusted in his sacrifice to be your substitute for sin, then the application of this text is to praise the Lord for his love for you in Jesus Christ. Praise him that he didn't love you only enough to let you go. But he loved you enough to protect you. In our own language, we would say to fight for you. To struggle with your sin, to cause Christ to be the victor in your place, the champion of his people, the savior of our souls. Praise him that he loved you enough not to let you go. Rather, he's made his son as a refuge for your souls. Because if you have trusted in him, you are safe in his protection. For time and eternity... Not just from the sins that everybody else knows about, but from the sins that you hide in your heart that nobody else has ever seen or will see except the Lord. He tells us that if we make him a refuge for our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's made him a refuge for us to cleanse us from sin, to set us free from transgression. And if you have trusted in him today, the application is rejoice in the Lord. If you have not trusted in him today, the question is, when? When will you flee for refuge? When will you trust in the only name under heaven by which men may be saved? When will you flee to the one who has become a refuge for all those who trust in him? 
When will you come to him confessing, I am the sinner who needs the refuge that you have given in Jesus Christ? Today may be the day. And if you trust in him, you too will be saved. Let's pray together. O gracious Lord our God, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We pray that you would help us to see not just these legal commands that you gave a people of old, but help us to see the way that they point to Jesus Christ, the refuge for sinners. Help us to see your mercy in him, and help us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that we might find life in his name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.